One project was a pilot who had flown with all these mega famous people. So he had these incredibly entertaining stories about all of them. So he decided to publish that on his own and he marketed that on his own. And he's a well-connected person. And so that was successful. Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hi guys, Amy here. Today's episode is something that I recorded quite a while ago, and I've been dreading trying to publish it, um, not because of the content. I think the content is wonderful, but because we had some technical difficulties and the sound got really, really messed up. I knew it was gonna I knew it was gonna be really difficult to edit the sound. Um, but once I went back and re-listened to it, I thought I really need to put this out there because our guest, Janet Kirkman, has so much incredible information to share and inspiration. So I buckled down and I spent quite a bit of time messing with the sound. Hopefully it's not painful to listen to. I don't think it's actually all that bad now. Um, and you're going to hear some really Good stuff from a veteran in the field. Janet has been doing life story writing for 15 years, and she's gotten into a lot of, um, well, she's she's done some other things. So in this episode, you'll hear her talk about facilitating memoir writing classes based on the guided autobiography um, system. You'll hear her talk about doing legacy letters, something that she learned from Barry Baines. Um, she'll, she'll also share some stories about writing writing books for people who wanted then to go and self-publish the stories. So that things that fall a little bit outside of the norm, the, the I think she calls it the bread and butter of our meat and potatoes of our life story work, but um, things that you will likely, you know, will all be approached by people as soon as they hear that we're writers when they have a story that they want to get out into the world. The interview got fairly long, so I'm breaking it up into two parts. And part two, which will be the next episode that I release, she'll talk about a couple of the niches that she's been involved in, including doing pet stories. And I loved hearing about this because it's more involved, uh, I guess, in a way than what I would have expected. And the rewards can be very great for the storyteller. And the storyteller, of course, is not the furry creature, but the owner. Um, She is also going to talk a little bit about doing dog stories for show dogs. And that's something that obviously is a very small micro niche. But, um, you know, as soon as she told me that one of the dogs that she did the story for rode in its own chartered plane to go to um, one of the shows, I thought, okay, this could really be something that the owners are interested in doing. That will all be those those things. Oh, including something else I forgot. She will talk about writing stories of heirlooms. So physical possessions that people have um, and capturing the stories behind them. And that kind of history can be really illustrative of the trials and tribulations that a family has gone through or the joys that they've gone through, that they've experienced. Um, And she gives us an example, a really incredible example of an armoire and um, the house history that she wrote that included the story of this armoire. Because of our technical difficulties, I lost a good portion of the beginning of the interview. And that was where we talked about 
about Janet and how she got into life story writing. Suffice it to say that it wasn't her first career choice. She had many different uh, career paths, mostly as um, a writer and in marketing. And it was reading an article in Time magazine that was her inspiration to get into life story writing. Um, So you'll hear us mention the Time magazine article and Latisse Stewart, who was um, has been mentioned on this podcast before. She was one of the founding members of the Association of Personal Historians a 20-year professional organization that just folded last year, just closed its door last year. And um, because of that, its demise, that is one of the reasons that I decided to go out and do this podcast, because I want to keep the conversation going. I want people who are in this business or who want to get into this business to have a place to go to talk about these issues, to listen to conversations about these issues, a place to get information on how to do things and just get inspired. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation, part one of our conversation with Janet Kirkman. Tell us a little bit more about your background and um, what led you to to the place that you are now, because I know that you've had other careers, which just for the listeners, that happens to be probably the norm rather than the exception for people to have careers and then come into this as a second or a third career. That's exactly right. I started uh, uh, teaching. I was a speech pathologist for uh, some years, and I worked with the public schools with uh, little critters. And then at that time, you could look up on the salary schedule and see what you could make in 20 years, and it was not very much money. Oh, boy, that was all published. Oh, yes. And being an ambitious soul, um, I left there and went into the business world, and I was in pharmaceutical sales for quite some time. And uh, I was in management uh, at the time, and then I went to work for a family-owned company, and I was in in, uh, industrial sales for 17 years after that. And uh, that's when I was in sales and marketing management, and I was a senior manager and so forth. And so as... uh, Life does sometimes uh, causes you to take a look at your life and say, this isn't working. Uh, my mother was sick at the, at the time, and uh, I was traveling all over God's green earth, and that just wasn't working. So you were I, traveling for work, you mean? Yes. Yeah. And so I left that job. I had never quit a job in my life. <laughs> and then um, I had always written for uh, business purposes, uh, articles for magazines and trade publications and so forth. And so my passion was writing, and I didn't really know that at the time. So I flipped around, uh, you know, checked out a few things, and nothing felt quite right. Of different types of writing, you mean? I, no, different, you know, careers after oh, okay. that. Um, because I realized I was a working girl. And... Um, so at that time, that's when I discovered that uh, piece in Time magazine, and it was one of those light bulb moments. Uh, I read it, and it was like, okay, that's it. That's what I want to do. And so I called Latisse, and as you said, she was very, very gracious. She had written kind of a how-to manual or something that I think I, I got, and um, so I, that's how I got started. And that was 15-plus years ago. And um, Isn't it funny how those things appear right when we need them? Oh, yes. Right. If anyone could have told me that would happen that way, I would have said, oh, my. I uh, received my first paying job as a personal historian through another person who no longer uh, was active in the, the group. 
and uh, she had talked to this gentleman, and um, so he ended up being my first, my first project. It's you know, it seems like I've talked to other people where things just sort of fall in their laps. You know, like my my biggest client to date, or my biggest project that I worked on to date, was um, he found me because I literally left a uh, a business card in a coffee shop, and and it does seem like you know. You know, there's some serendipity there, but I also feel like there are not very many people who do what we do, and I think the need far outstrips the you know the this the demand is there, the supply you know the suppliers, people like us. Yes. I don't think there's that many of us, no. um, and so I, you know, I, I think that definitely has had its impact on at least how I have gotten clients mm -hmm. and I imagine how you have too. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that, you know, that goes back to also this feeling, you know, you and I are in the same market, you know, we're, we're both in the Kansas city area. We both do life story books. So in any other field, I think we would be considered competitors. And I mean, technically, I guess we are competitors, but I feel like we are much more colleagues and, you know. Yes, most definitely. Right. Most definitely. And that's really a breath of fresh air compared to other industries where I have worked where it's just very cutthroat. Um, I know it's, we talked about this, it's been your experience too, that everyone in that group just welcomes you with open arms. You can ask them anything. They will tell you they're just, they couldn't be any more open. Right. And these are other personal historians. Yes. Right? Uh -huh. As opposed to other professions or right. professional organizations. Where exactly. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I wanted to talk, well, first of all, I wanted to give you a thank you. And I'm, I'm doing this publicly. Um, but back in my very early days of doing this, you know, I was trying to, I had a, a part-time job on the side. Um, I was trying to make a go of this as a career. And this is something for um, people who are just getting into this. You know, you can, you don't have to only take your ideal life story project you can look around, there are other ways of getting in and learning. And one of the things that you did for me at the very beginning was you gave me some transcription work. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was great because it was some money in my pocket, but it was also wonderful because I got to hear you do interviews with people. And that's not something that we're privy to very often. So, you know, you're, you're, you're a professional, you know what you're doing. And so for me as a newbie, to be able to listen to somebody who knew what she was doing, that was beautiful. Oh, yeah, well, great. It was, oh, I'm <laughs> glad you feel that way. That worked out well for both of us. It did. Mm -hmm. It did. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, so that's something to keep in mind for listeners to keep in mind that there's, there's ways of collaborating with people who are more experienced and, you know, you'll earn some money, but you'll also earn a lot of, um, just from their experience. It's a win-win situation for everybody because there are people who do life story writing or other kinds of personal history who need to farm out some of the work. Um, and so they contract other people, whether it's for writing, collaboration, for doing editing, for doing transcription work. And anything that you can get into that's going to um, open that world to you and give you a little bit of knowledge and experience is going to be helpful if you're starting out. I know when I first started, I did everything myself. And that was a great uh, learning tool for me because unless you've been there, done that, you don't understand what's all involved. Like if somebody says transcriptions can take four and a half hours for each hour, you go, why? 
Right. I can type faster than that. I can do better than that or whatever. Um, but once you've actually worn those hats yourself, then you know uh, exactly what's, what's all involved and you have more respect for people that you might work with on the outside. Right. For their and expertise. Can you tell people what kinds of work you might now contract out to other people? Like what parts of the process would you uh, do you sometimes not do yourself, but you have other people do now? Sometimes, well, as you mentioned, uh, transcriptions, that's just a very uh, labor-intensive uh, part of the of the job. I have contracted out the, the uh, design aspects um, of it, and the marketing has been handled by a couple of clients <clears throat> themselves after they wanted to be more public about what they had written. Talk a little bit about that, because most of the books that I do, and I think that in general for personal historians, the, the vast majority are privately published and they're just intended for family and friends. But you've had a little bit of a different experience. I have, and that's been an interesting bend to my, to my work. One project was a pilot who had uh, flown with all these mega famous people. So he had these incredibly uh, entertaining stories about all of them. So he decided to publish that on his own and he marketed that on his own. And he's a well-connected person. And so that was successful. So he self-published. It wasn't, he didn't go through a, one of the big publishing houses. He actually self-published. Right. Right. And he was able to, to sell copies of it. Yes, he did. But like I say, only because he was well-connected in his community. Um, another gentleman that I worked with, uh, in that project, let me back up a second, I did the uh, interviews and editing on that particular project and wrote part of the narrative and some of the other aspects were handled by other people. Um, for the uh, other project that I had that was a long-term project, I did interviews with lots of people for an author and uh, that was an eye-opening experience. It was very, very... Uh, intense because people were talking about life experiences um, that they shared with us and then he went on to self-publish that and market that on his own. So he has a website that promotes it and the whole nine yards. Yeah. And was that the book that it started because there was a murder? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And can you, I don't know how much you're at liberty to talk about that, but if you are, can you can you tell people? Because that's, what I'd like to get across is that you know, most people that will contact you as a personal historian want to talk about their own life or they want to hire you to do their parents' story. That's been my experience. And very often it is, it's fairly straightforward. They tell you about their childhood. They tell you about, um, you know, their young adult years. They may go all the way through their adulthood, but it's for a particular audience of, you know, very small audience, and it's to pass on their personal memories. But then we get a little outside of that box, and we get people who are interested in doing books for other reasons. There's other motivations, and maybe it's not just their own story, but there's obviously very big overlap with you know, with life story writing, because, it, you know, it's all life stories, right? Yes. So can you talk a little bit about the one where there was a murder and that set off a chain of events that ended up in these books that sure. you've collaborated um, on? First of all, this um, gentleman was referred to me by um, a person who hired me to write his mother's story. 
so that's how that project came into being. And anyway, so the genesis of it was that there, he had a personal experience uh, with a uh, murder, and uh, it was um, a life-changing light bulb moment for him. He thought that he could use that to propel stories about other people who have gone through similar circumstances and had a hopeful message. And so that's how that came to be. But all that being said, um, those projects, like you said, are kind of an anomaly. The meat and potatoes, I guess I would say, of our work has been the family histories. And so if people, if someone would come to me and say, you know, that they would want to write a bestseller and da da da, you know, the whole the whole thing, I would gently uh, guide them to a more realistic stance. This uh, murder series that I was talking about, he spent thousands and thousands of dollars uh, promoting it and uh, enlisted several other uh, experts along the way. So it was a very, very expensive uh, process. The other gentleman, the pilot that I referred to, that was less expensive, but he had kind of a built-in audience. Mm -hmm. So that was more of a, uh, a boutique kind of uh, project for him. Right. And so he is, uh, is he actually selling his book then? Yeah. So he's recouping some of the costs to have help with producing it. Well, he would need to, to um, sell thousands to recover, recoup oh, okay. his cost. So that kind of gives you an idea of where that falls within that. Right. That realm. Right. I've, you know, I have a couple of um, ongoing projects right now where the the client um, approached me with something other and something else in mind besides a family or a life history. Yes. And I think that as long as you're very clear, which is what I've done, you know, I I'm, I don't I don't um, get into publishing, I don't get into book marketing, and as long as you're very clear, mm -hmm. you know, we can all write the kinds of stories that they want, and if they want to make the investment, which very many people do, you know, for them it is a very worthy investment to per pursue commercial publication. I don't see that there's anything wrong with us writing a story. So, you know, taking our strengths and helping them bring that to fruition. And, um, you know, whether it actually works or not, um, that it's okay as long as they understand the risks. Uh-huh. I agree. I think, you know, my take has always been to get the story and help people find a way to tell their stories, whatever avenue that might take. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And I think you need to be open to things and look outside the box. One of the things that I did at the very beginning was I basically told people, you know, when they were coming to me interested in a project, and these projects can be very expensive. I mean, by definition, they are expensive yes. because they are so labor intensive, you know. So for um, one hour of interview, like you mentioned, there's going to be probably four hours plus of transcription work. And then the editing is, there's a massive amount of time that goes into editing. Um, and that's when I sit down with people for the initial sales meeting, I want to make that very clear to them. There's so much time, you know, that it's it ends up being pretty much for me probably 85, 90% of the time is spent in front of the computer. So that's working with the material, and it's um, 
you know, it depends on which part of the project you're on. If you're getting closer to the end, then you have to make sure that everything is weaving together in the proper places and the flow is there. You know, at the beginning, it's just getting big chunks of information where they belong. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, because that is the, pretty much the first question that people ask you, how much does this cost? Okay. How do you address that? Well, that's the $64,000 question, I think. And the variables that you mentioned are important to line out. When I sit down with someone, I like to find out what what they have in mind, uh, because it might be just a snippet of their lives. It might be the entire chronology. So anywhere along the way, you know, there's a budget that they may or may not have in mind. Uh, A lot of people that I work with have no clue what it might cost. And so I, I usually give them a range. It can be anywhere from 500 to 5,000 on up. It just depends on the, the scope of the project. And what, I'll, what I would do for them is to line out every single thing that total uh, includes so that they feel comfortable moving forward. And then do you do that when you're sitting talking to them or do you have it on paper that you give to them? So when you're saying that you're lining it out, how, how, what does that look like? Um, usually that's just a verbal agreement. A lot of people work with contracts. I have not done that. Um, I don't know. The jury's still out for me on that. I have been burned a couple of times, but that's kind of the nature of the beast mm-hmm. when you're working with the public, in my opinion. And I'm not sure that having a contract would have helped in that sense anyhow. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because uh, once you get into someone's personal life, it's very, very uh, personal. (laughs) That goes without saying. But they're telling you some things that they may not have shared with anyone else. And so there's a cathartic aspect of it uh, for a lot of people. And I have found in the long run, the cost is not uh, the major factor. What they want to do is to accomplish uh, either leaving a legacy uh, or setting the record straight on something or telling their own version of events. So um, that being said, you know, I just tell them, you know, okay, we will arrive at a budget together. Let's say that it's several thousand dollars. And I will tell you if we're bumping up into that, uh, that figure and then you can decide how you want to proceed past there. And do you find that most people want to continue? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. After they've, um, I think after the first session, when they get an idea that it's just basically a, a conversation. Uh, I don't really come in with a list of pointed questions. and. You're talking about when you do the interviews. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So once they've experienced that first interview... I can't think of anyone that hasn't wanted to proceed after that. That's an interesting point because, you know, I think there's two schools of thought. Either you're very upfront about um, a, a, a project price, you know, so you work out or it, you know, more often a range. And, you know, I think some people say you should err on the higher side just to weed out people who think that, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a book for, you know, 
a few hundred bucks, mm -hmm. right? Which we all know is not possible. Mm -hmm. You can do some other projects for that, but not you can't get a full book for that. But what you're saying is that, you know, maybe we don't need to approach it that way. Maybe the sticker shock would turn them on, turn them off before they even get to the point of realizing what a profound process this is to sit down and talk to somebody about your life. Yes, I, I think so. I mean, it's just a, such a sensitive dynamic when you're asking them these questions. And like I said, they may be talking about some things they've never talked about before. And so once you have that level of trust, it, there needs to be that level of trust on both sides, obviously. Uh, and then once you've established that, I think it's easy to go forward. I have found that. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. You have done some memoir writing classes Yes. Some community memoir writing classes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that's been a very satisfying venue for me. <clears throat> I um, trained with a woman named Anita Reyes, and she uh, studied with James Buren, uh, who's the father of the guided autobiography movement. He has since passed away, so I studied with uh, Anita, and uh, that was a very eye-opening class because uh, the questions that that have been gathered center around different themes. And so, uh, the, in fact, in my next uh, memoir book, I'm going to use that as a springboard instead of the way that I've usually worked in the past. But anyway, I have um, taught these classes several times, and it's just incredible the uh, feedback that you receive. So you, you took a guided autobiography class from Anita uh -huh. Reyes, and now you're you're implementing that in the classes that you're teaching. Yes. So she taught you how to teach these classes? Right, yes, I'm teaching the classes and it's based on all the James Beeren principles and, and uh, work that we did in her class. And how is that different from, say, just a typical memoir, memoir writing class? It's much more, uh, it's much deeper. And what happens is that uh, you write two pages uh, on a theme each week, and then you share that with the group. And the sharing aspect of it is what people enjoy the most, because uh, it's kind of like you know what we do. Like you mentioned, you spend 85% of your time in front of a PC. Well, this is very different than that because of the the dynamics, the interaction of people. They um, will hear something that you've written, that you've read, and it's like they say, oh, I never thought of it that way. Or, oh, that's an interesting take, and so forth. And the, the people in the group tend to be very supportive of others because they know firsthand how difficult it is to address some of those pointed questions. So that's, that's just way cool. I love it. Yeah. How long do the classes run, and what is the end goal, or is there an end goal, like for them to have a certain number of pages, or, or get them a good running start on doing their whole memoir themselves? Yeah. Well, each um, there are five sessions typically, and they write two pages, or fifteen hundred words, or whatever, <clears throat> on each topic. And some people want to continue, and work on their own. Uh, I have found though that people. Once people get started, unless they have a class format, it's just like everything else. You know, we mean to do it. Yeah, we, we're going to do it. We are definitely going to put that on our list of things to do. And it just doesn't happen. 
And so some people have um, taken off and written on their own, continue to, but by and large, it just stops there. And so what I what I have done is I have introduced uh, guided autobiography uh, level two. And so we continue with that same core group and start another series of five. And do any of these people ever turn into clients for you where they ask you to write their life story? They haven't yet. And I have learned that that's kind of the way that goes. What do you mean? That, that, that they don't turn into paying clients in that in that respect. Um, at first I was very hopeful and I thought, well, if I just do this, I'll get a big project, whatever. But I uh, learned to kind of back up and enjoy the process and just relax into whatever format it takes. And so with uh, two groups that I have, we still get together, this is two years ago, we still get together once a month and we have a topic that we write on. And this is after a couple of years. Yes. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so these, uh, these women will say, you know, I've never shared the things that I have with this group. And it's just... Isn't it incredible? Oh, uh, yes. The, the gift that people give us. Oh, exactly. Us exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a real privilege to hear their stories. Right. And um, there's a lot of trust involved. And just the satisfaction is just through the roof. Well, and I imagine even if these, you know, like you said, you went into it thinking this might be a way of, of, you know, building up your roster of clients, even though that hasn't happened, I'm guessing that there are skills that you are learning, which avenues to follow that are, can be very meaningful for people when they're talking about their life. So I'm guessing that you're learning things that you can then apply to your paid projects. Sure. Sure. Um, but what I mostly learn is facilitating. That's I love facilitating. It's one of my passions I've discovered. And I think that I'm good at it. I'm good at drawing people out, at getting people to interact with one another. And so that's just tons of fun. It's probably partly your voice. You have such a good voice. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's such a gentle voice, a oh. safe, safe haven voice. <laughs> So um, these classes, they um, are, are. Do you earn any money teaching them, or yes. are they free? Yeah. yeah. And how did you uh, did you go to a because you teach them? I think at a community center. Is that correct? I, uh, yeah, I've taught in several different places. Uh-huh. And then how do how does that work? Just logistically, do you go to the community center and say, "Hey, I I have an idea for a class I want to teach. Can you host it?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes. It can be difficult because the location might charge you like half of the enrollment fee for per person or whatever. And so, you know, there's that to consider. So if you can find a venue that's free that you don't have to pay for, a library would be a, an excellent place, um, then that would be the way to go. And then does that hosting organization publicize it, or do you have ways yes. of publicizing it yourself? They do. Typically they have newsletters, a website, and all that, so that's, that part is sort of done for you to a mm-hmm. degree. And do you do any on your end? Uh, I haven't much. But you haven't needed to, it sounds like. No. The people come. Mm-hmm. Right. They do. And how do you decide how much to charge for, for a class fee? Well, I just set a, a fee based on partly on what Anita uh, talked about in her series. And I just came up with a figure that I thought made sense. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't been any issue. 
yeah. at all. And do you know if Anita is still teaching these classes? Yes, she is. She uh-huh. is. Uh huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, then I'll put the link in the show notes too. Yes, for that. she's. She's excellent. I I really have a lot of respect for her. Was this an online class that you took? Yes, uh-huh. Yes, so, I have. Let's back up, though, and talk about legacy. I trained with Barry Baines in, uh, this is years ago, in uh, legacy writing. And uh, and he's the one that specializes in things like ethical wills. Yes, yes. uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't call them ethical wills because people don't are not comfortable with that. I call them legacy letters, typically. And so I've taught several classes in that uh, venue, too. And that's been very, very satisfying. Um, People who talk about, you know, what they intended to do with their life, regrets that they might have along the way, lessons learned in life, you know, some deep, deep subjects. (laughs) And so uh, that's been, that's been really really cool too. So that's another venue that people could explore. For teaching or for actually doing it for the people? Uh, both. Oh. Mm-hmm. And when you teach it, is it a, is it a one day, is it like a workshop? Or yes, is it... it's a workshop, like three parts. Oh, and what yeah. are the different parts? You have um, the first part where you're doing an educational model. You talk about things like who did you learn the most from in your life, uh, who had the most influence, uh, that kind of thing, and there are exercises in and along the way. And then, uh, so it's very, uh, it's not a lecture format, it's a participatory kind of thing. And then at the end, they are to write their own legacy letters and share those with the group. Oh, wow. Okay. And so the the class typically meets over three different days. Uh-huh. Um, so you said there's the education component. What are the other components? Well, there are they're educational in nature too, but they're participatory, um, and they're exercises in and along the way, and and different things. What are one or two of the exercises? Uh, one is if you could ask an ancestor uh, some questions that you always wanted to and never have, what would they be? You know, you think there's always that person that you had some, maybe some unfinished business with, uh, or whatever. So that's really, really neat. Yeah, that sounds powerful. Uh It is. It is. So that's one. And then do you have them answer this for the whole group or do they work in in pairs? Um, Small groups, typically, you know, it depends on how many people that you have. But if it's a small group, you know, you can have everyone involved. If it's a larger group, you can break it into small groups where they can share. And then you can have somebody kind of be the spokesmodel (laughs) for that particular group and and share with the, the rest. Well, I know a lot of um, wealth managers, so you know, lawyers who do estate planning and people who deal with high net worth families. That is one of the buzzwords now. Is you know the whole the ethical wills and legacy projects, um, because they're trying to find a way to connect. Um, you know, not just have their relationships be transactional, but actually relational with the families that they're serving. And also, as as part of that, like a, um, an added bonus is that instead of just delivering the paperwork, um, you know, for how they're going to pass on their money, that they're delivering something above and beyond that. Because there's this whole phenomenon of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. So within three generations, the family wealth, you know, that was started by the matriarch and the patriarch, you know, who who created this family business usually, um, 
by the grandchildren's generation that has been that has completely dissipates in 70% of the cases. So now in the wealth management industry, they're trying to bring in things that are more than just let us help you with the taxes and let us help you with the estate planning. Exactly. That we talk about um, tangibles versus intangibles, and that's. Um, I think there will be more, much more of a need for that as people go forward, especially as the financial marketplace gets more crowded. Uh, it's a way for financial planners to differentiate themselves and bring somebody in uh, separately to address those issues. And that does it for our interview with Janet Kirkman. I just love talking to that woman. Her voice, her voice is so gentle and sweet. And I can imagine being a storyteller who's hired somebody to write my story for me. Just, oh my gosh, being so comfortable talking to her. Something that really struck me is the fact that Janet has been operating for 15 years as a life story writer, and she has not had a website, except for temporarily when she had one for her um, pet stories. I don't think any of us should feel like we don't need a website, um, but it does point to the fact that most people are not going to be finding us through our website. Um, you really need to get out there in your local community. You need to start talking to people and letting people know that you are there and available to help them write their story. That is the best marketing tactic that I know. It's worked for me. It's worked for a lot of different people. And it kind of goes against the grain of what we're hearing You know, with every other business now. Everything is about being online, having a strong social media presence, and possibly those things help. But honestly, the best thing, I think, is to let people in your community know that you are there and you are ready to help them. Remember, this was just part one of our interview with Janet, so stay tuned for the next episode, and that's when we are going to talk about her pet stories and doing histories on objects and big pieces of furniture, for example. I hope you enjoyed this, and if you did, please go and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way to spread the word about this profession. It's the best way for people to find us. And the more that we lift each other up and help each other get traction in doing life story writing and legacy projects, um, the better off we all are, because we're just going to raise the awareness in the public that we're here. Thanks for listening. Until next time, go out and save someone's story.